Well, as we continue in Lesson 15, you may think you're going to be in a Jewish history class today, but it's necessary that we look at this because it's fascinating. And it's important that we understand that chapter 7 and 8 have to be taken in one singular context. 7 and 8 were both written at a specific time in a specific event. And uh, that's why we're going to look at these two together. Uh, The thing that's going to be interesting, when we get to chapter 8, 1 through 11, chapter 8, 1 through 11 is not in any of the original transcripts or texts. It was probably added by oral tradition later on. And so when we get to 8, 1 through 11, we're going to skip 8 through 11 because it's not chronological. It was put in, and we're going to go straight to 8, 12, and I'll tell you why in a second. And then we're going to do the rest of 8, and then I'm going to hop back to this uh, oral tradition story that's not in your original manuscripts. Uh, I was just curious, those of you who have other translations other than King James and and New King James, does your Bible that you have have 8, 1 through 11 in it? Does everybody's Bible have 8, 1 through 11 in it? Some Bibles will not uh, put in the text if it's not in the original translation, and I was just curious if any translations do not have the text 8, 1 through 11. Everybody has it? Okay, beautiful. Uh, it is... Uh, it is uh, authorized by God. He's in, he's in there. He has preserved it in there. We'll study it. Uh, but it is just not in the original, and we're not going to do it chronologically. We'll do it at the back end of chapter 8. Just wanted you to know that. I want to read chapter 7. Actually, I want you guys to read chapter 7. Uh, so, uh, Austin, if you'll read uh, 1 through 9. Sheila, if you'll read 10 through 24. Uh, Rusty, if you'll go 25, 31. Uh, Sally, if you'll go 32 through 36, uh, uh, and I'm not going to remember. Uh, Dwayne, why don't you read 37 through uh, 44, and then uh, I'll finish it out 45 through 53. No, I won't. Dan, read 45 through 52, and uh, remember what I told you because I don't, and then we'll read this chapter.
on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge the righteous judgment. Therefore, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they were seeking to kill? And look, he is speaking publicly. And they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ will come, no one knows where he is from. Jesus therefore cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. They were seeking to seize him. No man laid his hand on him because his hour had not come. But many of the multitudes believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ shall come, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then said Jesus to them, Yet a little while, and I am with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. You shall seek me, and shall not find me. And where I am, there you cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, Where will he go, that we shall not find him? Will he go unto the dispersed among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks, or the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this, that he said, You shall seek me, and shall not find me. And where I am, there ye cannot come. Then on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, and those who believed him were to receive. For the Spirit is not yet given, because Jesus is not yet glorified. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. Still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, village where David was? So the division occurred in the, in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers come to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Any of the rulers of the Pharisees believe in him. This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look for no prophet has risen out of Galilee. Well, we see in chapter 7, verse 2, that this takes place during the Feast of Tabernacles. And as we've said before, many times in the book of John, Jesus uses specific times, specifically feast days of the Jews, to teach His doctrine and to point to the fact that He is God. That This is an evangelical text. He's ministering. He's reaching out to the Jewish nation and to the Gentiles. And the primary purpose of this book is to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you will have life. And that's the uh, primary theme of this book. And we've been looking. Everything that John teaches, the Apostle, all is going to focus in on these particular purposes. And today we're going to see some fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but we're going to see that Jesus is God, and we're going to see this in this context of chapter 7 and 8. We're going to take it as one unit during the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, Jesus is often, like I said, done this. You know, remember in chapter 6, verse 4, 
He taught during the Passover. That was 6-4. It's now the Passover. And what did He teach about the Passover? He taught about Him being the bread of life. Passover, unleavened bread occur one, one day, one the next. Unleavened bread lasts a week. But it's all about coming out of the land of Egypt, being redeemed with the blood that was on the doorpost, which is all going to point to Jesus Christ. The unleavened bread had no leaven in it. Leaven represents evil, so it points to Jesus too. There was no leaven in the unleavened bread, which is going to point to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ along with the blood. He taught that during Passover. We're going to see him teach on Hanukkah. We're going to see him teach about redemption and restoration to his people. We talked about Hanukkah in the book of Malachi. And we're going to see him do his final dissertation to his disciples in the upper room, 13 through uh, uh, verse 17 uh, through chapter 17 it's going to be on the Passover when he is the sacrificial lamb and he comes to Jerusalem and he comes to die for his people so we're going to see this but Feast of Tabernacles is fascinating it's the longest feast remember the Jews have to go to Jerusalem how many times a year? three, three times a year they have to go for what? what's the first one? Unleavened bread, and that occurs in April. And you, if you look at your Jewish calendar, if you know we always have Passover and unleavened bread is afterward, the Jews had to go to Jerusalem to celebrate this event. The second event they had to go to was what? What's the next one? Pentecost or harvest. It's called weeks, it's called Pentecost, and it's called harvest. And we know that that was a, it was a remembering of the provision of God for His taking care of them and the, the, His, His miraculous intervention and His providing for them. Later, Pentecost became the day when the first fruits of the harvest of the new church and Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost, that was also celebrated during the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. And today we're going to be talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. Who knows about the Feast of Tabernacles? It did a couple of different things. This is the longest celebration. It lasts... uh, a week, actually only eight days, it's the longest, and it occurs in the fall, and it always occurs September, October in the uh, Jewish calendar. And it is a celebration of what? Anybody know their Jewish history? Uh, it is the crops. Yes, it is a celebration of the crops, but it, the primary purpose of tabernacles, and this is also called booths, and it's also called feast of ingathering, and this is going to give you clues about why it was instigated. The booths represent uh, the wandering of the wilderness. The Jews wandered in the wilderness for 40 years once they left Egypt, and they wandered because of their unbelief. They didn't believe God. They didn't trust God. So the spies who went and spied out the promised land said, we can't take these people. They're, they make us look like grasshoppers, blah, blah, blah. They had no trust. Only Joshua and Caleb. Caleb believed the ten spies died as well as everybody that was 25 and older wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and they all died, right? So the Feast of Tabernacles is also called booths. And the booths were temporary devices, a little uh, palm branch, temporary uh, housing. Then when the children of Israel, when the, the rural communities, when they would go to Jerusalem once a year, uh, during this ceremony they would take some, uh, some uh, sh- uh, branches and some pieces of trees and set up little temporary booths. They would remember their wanderings and they would remember the provision of God. They would also celebrate for God's bountiful harvest and His provision for them. The thing that characterized the Feast of Booths and Tabernacles, there's two things, and you've got to understand that this is what Jesus focuses on on 7 and 8. It focuses on two things. It focuses on, on being thirsty And this is going to point to the rock, and we're going to get into this in great detail. And then it's going to focus on light. 
So Jesus takes the Feast of Tabernacles and He uses this opportunity to point that He is the God of the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of the law. And He is going to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. And this is evangelistic so the Jews will believe that He is who He says He is. And so He takes this feast day these particular emphases in the priest days, and he says, everyone who is thirsty, come to me. We're going to get into the rock in a second, and then he's going to say, I am light. The light, in the Feast of Tabernacles, every day there would be a lighting ceremony, and the lights represented something. And for bonus points, what did the lights represent to the nation of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years? Pardon me? The Shekinah glory of God, and I can't spell Shekinah, as represented by the cloud. Remember how He led the nation of Israel. If you look at... uh, uh, I'm going to have to go by bad memory, and this is scary. Let's go to... uh, uh, Let's go to 13 of Exodus. I'm quite sure. Let me see. Exodus 13. We know that the children of Israel were led... And... uh, 13.20... So they took their journey from Sukkot, Exodus 13.20. They took their journey from Sukkoth, camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to what? Give them light so as they could go day and night. He did not take the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from from before the people. So for 40 years, He led the people by cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And the pillar of fire, which is going to represent God's glory, as He leads His people through the darkness, He's the light. This light of the tabernacles is going to be a picture of the second I am, I am light. Okay? So we see that Jesus takes this Feast of Tabernacles and He emphasizes the two points of it, being thirsty and the water from the rock, and He's going to emphasize the light, that He is the representation of the glory of God, and He is the light that led the children of Israel, and He is the light that leads all men And He is the only one who keeps us from darkness. So this is what all of this is going to be about. These two emphases of the thirsty and the rock. And we understand what happened every day. During the Feast of Tabernacles, a priest would come out of the temple and before the people he would have a golden pitcher. And in this golden pitcher he would pour out water. And look at your notes. He would pour out water, D1D. He would pour out water from the golden pitcher as he standing from the temple. The symbolic act commemorated water flowing from the rock, which we're going to get to in a second. The people standing by would quote Isaiah 12.3, which is, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And they would also read, the priest would then read, Zechariah 14, 8 and 9. So turn with me to Zechariah. We did this when we did the book of Zechariah, but just to, to remember this, this is all pointing to Christ. All the Old Testament preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they would read this at the Feast of Tabernacles after they quoted Isaiah 12, 3 that uh, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. They didn't even understand the verse, but they quoted it. And then the priest would quote 14, 18, 8 of Zechariah. And that day, living waters will flow from Jerusalem. And in verse 9, in the day in the Lord... And the Lord will be king over the whole earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and His name is one. So you can see this picture. Priests pouring out this water. The people chanting, quoting Isaiah 12.3, From this waters of well you will bring your salvation. And then he reads about the living water. Now, 
The pouring out of the water is the picture of, of God providing water in the wilderness. And we're going to see this analogy of the rock. Now let's look to this. There are two instances in, the, in Exodus about the rock. One is a positive and one is a negative. Let's look at the positive, and this is what the sacrifice, this is what the Feast of Tabernacles is all about. 17.6. Deuteronomy, uh, Exodus 17.6. And I want you to see Jesus Christ in these verses. And I want you to tell me what principles and what things we theologians, I'm not a theologian, what theologians call substitution. And I want you to see this. Beautiful. 17. I'm going to start with, I'll just go ahead and read the context. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidium. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people, as they always did, contended with Moses and says, Give us water that we may drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? And the people thirsted for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Here's what they always say, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Moses cries out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And Yahweh said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Listen to this. Behold, I, Yahweh, will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. God is identifying Himself with the rock. And He told Moses and the elders to hit the rock. What does this mean? What does this mean from our study? Jesus is that rock, that the rock in the wilderness typified. Yes. Sally's always ahead of me. Read 1 Corinthians 10.4. I don't know exactly, but Christ, I don't know what I mean, Christ is the rock. Paul is explaining this, what we're just reading, 1 Corinthians 10.4. Paul says, they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.4. So Jesus is God. Jesus is the explanation of God. Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. He is, he is God in every way, shape, form, and fashion. He is just visible. He is tangible. And He is how we know God by His perfect, righteous life on earth. So Jesus is saying during this Feast of Tabernacles, when He cries out, if you are thirsty... Call on my name because I am the rock that was struck. Notice what God says. I will stand before you on the rock. And then you need to hit the rock. He's saying, you hit the rock. That's the substitutionary atoning work of Christ. Everybody understand that? So we transfer the rock metaphor is Christ, okay? And so when we, God says, I will stand before you on the rock, you hit the rock, and that, when the hitting of the rock comes, the water comes out, which is a picture of what? The blood spilled, the Holy Spirit that flows, right? So Jesus is the explanation for the Feast of Tabernacles in the most important uh, uh, two important uh, points made that there is a rock and there is light. And so let's look at this, uh, these, uh, this, this view on rock. It's all throughout the Scripture. Uh, I'm going to make it easier on us. Uh, this, uh, let's look at some rock verses. Uh, Sally has given us the New Testament explanation 
the Old Testament is explained by the New Testament. Paul explains the types and the meaning of the rock in the New Testament. But we see many, 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 many verses on the rock. And if you'll write these down, we'll read these. Just, just in the Psalms, we've got 31.3. We've got 78.35. We've got 94.22. We've got 95-1. We've got 61-2. In the book of Isaiah, we have 17-10. And we have 32-2. In Deuteronomy, we have 32-18 and 31. We have 1 Samuel 2-2. And we have 2 Samuel 22-32. 2 and 47. All of these are verses that are going to illustrate the rock. And they're all going to point to Jesus. And that book I told you guys about, all of these are in it. And they are going to be the types and they're going to explain Christ in His role as rock and from Him. And when you see hear the word rock, what is your immediate... If you'd say a synonym for rock... What would you say, rock? What synonym does that rise in, raise in your head? Stone. Stone. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's Ephesians 2. Is it 2.20? I believe you. Stone. What else? It's foundational. Peter's confession that you are the Christ, the Son of God, is a foundational statement upon which Christ builds His church. And Peter is a little stone, right? And so we are all lively stones. So it's stone, it's the builder, it's foundational. What else? When Martin Luther's cried, and hit, when he wrote the words, A mighty fortress is our God, he wrote it from Psalm 31. And what, is, uh, what, what, uh, what comes to your mind when we hear rock? Stone foundation. What we? It's immovable. It's immovable. It is solid. It is trustworthy. It cannot be moved. Okay. And so those who build their house upon the rock, when the rains come and the floods come and the winds blow, they beat upon that rock. If you're on the rock, you're not going to be capsized. But if you build your hands upon the sand, what's the sand? The world. The stuff of the world. The culture. If, doing your own thing. When the storms of life come, what happens to that? Splatters. How many of us have been splattered because our foundation was in the sand? If you didn't raise your hand, you're, you're not honest. Okay, so this stone, foundational, immovable... It's a hiding place. Boy, I tell you what, there's no place that I run to first to the rock that is higher than I, right? So He's the rock. So these verses, let's look at these verses if you don't believe me. Study the Scriptures for yourselves to see if what I'm saying is not true. So we'll look at this. Psalm 31.3 Jesus is the rock, this Feast of Tabernacles. He's the rock from which the living waters flow from. Look what David said, 31.3, You're my rock and my fortress. For Your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Look at this rock. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. You're my strength. Into Your hand I commit my spirit, which is a quote from Jesus on the cross. You have redeemed me, O Lord of truth. So if you are in a pickle, you need to cry out to the rock who is your fortress and He will pull you out of the net and be your strength and you can commit your life to Him. And He will redeem you. Okay? Let's look at uh, 78.35, Psalm. 78.35. 35. This is a retelling of the history of the nation of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. 78.35. And they remembered that God was their rock. 
and the Most High was their Redeemer. What that little phrase, and they remembered, what were they doing when they remembered? They sinned, they didn't believe, their days were consumed in fertility, and then it dawned on them like it dawned on the prodigal son how good it was in my father's house. And I had to come to that realization, and you have to come to that realization. They remembered they had a rock. And they remembered that rock was their redeemer. And he bought them from the slave block of sin, and they, and they understood they had to hide and retreat in him so that he would pull them out of the net. Okay? Look at 94.22. We are a stubborn people, and we always have to be reminded Look at this, 94.22, The Lord has been my defense, and my God is the rock of my refuge. He has brought on them their iniquity. They will cut. He shall cut off the wicked in their wickedness, and the Lord will cut them off. So there's a contrast between the help of God and being our defense and the, and the hopelessness of the wicked, and they will be cut off. Look at 95.1, a worship psalm. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Then we'll go back in time. We'll go to 61, verse 2. And this is one I quoted. From the end of the earth I will cry to you when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. It's interesting the Bible tells us not to be anxious over anything. But the Bible also says, in the multitude of my anxieties, your comforts delight my soul. And so when we are overwhelmed and when we are anxious, we cry out to the rock that is higher than I. And we, and we, we are held by Him immovably. And we are preserved by Him. This sort is pretty easy to preach because it's truth, huh? Look at Isaiah 17.10. Jesus is the rock out of which the living waters flow. He's the substitute. He became and He was struck. 17.10 Because you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not been mindful of the rock. Look at the consequences of that. When you forget... And you're not mindful of the rock which was your stronghold. What happens? 11. Your harvest will be a heap of ruins and a day of grief and desperation and sorrow will follow. Every day. We all are a fallen people. And to go to that place in your frailty, in your sin, and to know that He is there to comfort and take you. To Absolutely. Very good. He's our refuge. Troubles are going to come. Trials are going to come. Storms are going to come. It's what you do when the storms come. Uh, you run to the rock in your refuge. And then look at 32. This is just so comforting. This is a, a messianic. Uh, some of this is messianic. Futuristic. Uh, Psalm, 9, uh, Psalm 32, 1 and 2. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. This is the Messiah. And princes will rule with justice. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind. So this is a king's a hiding place. He's a cover. As rivers of water in a dry place and the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Where did Elijah run to when he was... What did Elijah do when he was running and weary as he ran from... What was her name? Jezebel. Thank you. Ahab and Jezebel. He ran 120 miles. Didn't know where he was going. And he got sheltered and he was covered in a rock right in the cave. And he ran to that. So uh, we see that uh, Deuteronomy, if you'll go back to 32.18 of Deuteronomy, all of these are verses about Jesus being the rock. 
32.18, this is the song of Moses. This is another interesting definition of the rock, which we do not have in our synonyms. 32.18, of the rock, look at that, who begot you. You are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. So we see here that the rock begets us. He initiates our salvation and He provides for our salvation. He did it. And we're not to be, we're not to be unmindful of the fact that it's His salvation. And if He has saved you, you'll never be lost. And you run back to Him. And you repent. And if you do, He will forgive you, right? All these are truths. And if you look at 31 of uh, the same chapter 32, and there's not a verse 31, so I have a problem. There is. I'm, I, I skipped a chapter. There we go. Where is you? I'm having a mind block here. 32, 31. I'm in Isaiah. Huh? What, what does verse 31 say of Deuteronomy? It says, For their rock is not like our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. Not like our rock. How's everybody else's rock? Tell me the difference between our rock and their rock. What is their rock? Well, their rocks are synthetic. Synthetic. Ours is true, theirs is false. The next line in mine, in mine says, um, where is that again? Our enemies are by themselves. So we have God, they have no one. Beautiful. That are easy to teach. Good. Look at this one. First Samuel 2 2. Those who say the Old Testament, ah, well, I tell you, I'm glad it's there. First Samuel 2 2. This is Hannah. God gave her a son. Name is Samuel. A miracle. Look what Hannah prays. She said, No one is holy like Yahweh. There is none besides Yahweh, nor is there any rock like our God. Turn over to 2 Samuel 22. 32 and 47. 2 Samuel 22. This is David, 32, 22-32. Who is God except the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? God is strength, and God is power, and God makes my way perfect. God sets me on high places. God teaches my hands to war. God makes my arms strong so I can bend a bronze bow. He makes my way perfect. Look at verse 47. It is God who avenges me. No, 47, the Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. It is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me and delivers me and lifts me up. And so therefore I give thanks. So we see a lot about the rock. He delivers us. He avenges us. He's to be exalted. He's to be praised. He lifts us up and He delivers us. So Jesus is that rock. He is that rock to which the Feast of Tabernacles points. Rock. Everybody understand rock. So when we get to verse 37 next time, you will understand what I'm talking about. It is interesting that this priest stands up before the people and pours out the water every day except the last day. He doesn't do it on the last day. Guess when Jesus comes up and when He says what He says. What does it say? Verse 37. On the last day, Jesus, to which this type is pointing, He fulfills it. And so what the priest doesn't do it, He comes up, the great high priest, and He fulfills what the Old Testament only symbolically points to. Everybody grab that? Does that grab you? This don't excite you, your wood's wet? Okay, so we see this 
great connotation. The second one is light. And we said that the light is the uh, going to eventually going to be the Shekinah glory of God, but it is a picture of the cloud that directed the nation of Israel at night. And what they did in the tabernacles, they would have lighting ceremonies, and every day there would be light. And when you see light, it's all throughout the Scriptures. It's one of the most important metaphors in Scriptures. What does light represent? And what does it do? Some things. It's the glory of God. Yes, Sally? Reveals truth, and it exposes darkness. And men love darkness rather than light. Jesus is the light of the world, and He comes in, He reveals the glory of God, and He reveals truth, and He exposes darkness. That's why people hate Him, because His light exposes their hearts. What else about light? Purity. Holiness, it lights, it lights our paths. Well, it doesn't just re- reveal darkness, it dispels it. Woo! The room is no longer dark. Isn't she a good wife? She teaches, that's good. It not only exposes it, it dispels it. Light cannot exist in the light, right? And it lights our path. Just like it kept the people of Israel from being lost and groping in the darkness, and so it does us. It's a light unto our feet, and I've always wondered about that, but the fact is, we look at our feet in light, in truth, as God sees our feet. How dirty are they? How filthy are your feet, Sally? Because that has to be washed up and clean before I know how to walk in a path that is right. Sister, sister, come on. That's good. And so when Jesus says in 8.12 at the Feast of Tabernacles, I am light, everybody now should understand what he's talking about. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so he's the second I am, which we'll get into next week. We see all of these truths, not coincidentally, providentially, he comes in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody get that today? I always say that, don't I, Melanie? So, we see this overview of what's going on. And now we're simply going to clean up the logistics of it. So everybody got this? It's fixing to vanish. Anybody not get these scriptures? We're going to look at light verses when we get to I am light. So panic not. Now, what we see here, and like I've said, the first 12 chapters are predominantly uh, rejectors of Jesus Christ. And 5 through 7, actually 5 through 8, is going to be the mountaintop of the rejectors. And we're going to see their boiling and hatred of Jesus come to an ignoble head. And we see that in this book. And so we see also, I've looked at the setting. I can't remember my notes. The timing of this is very important. Timing of these events. We've looked at the Feast of Tabernacles as setting. Now the timing is important. Notice the difference that Jesus demonstrates to his to the rejectors and to the believers. In chapter six, Jesus spent how many days with the crowd after he had broken the bread and broken the fish and fed the twenty thousand. And all the fragments, we talked about what that meant, the spiritual ramification. He spent two days with the rejectors because he knew what was in their hearts. Now between six and seven, seven months. 
Seven months occur between 6 and 7. Chapter 6 is in the Passover, which is in April. Chapter 7 is in September, October. So we have seven months, roughly, that we have no written works of Jesus or teachings of Jesus. Seven months of silence. I like what MacArthur says about the seven months of silence. He says, and I'll quote, There's a seventh month gap between six and seven. It's no accident that Jesus spent two days with the rejectors and seven months with His disciples. The phrase, walk in Galilee and did not walk in Judah, highlights the importance of discipleship as Jesus prepared His followers for their future important task. So He spends two days with the rejectors who just follow Him because they just want to see a miracle. They just want to see the charismatic. They just want to see the miraculous because they don't believe Jesus is who they say He is. And He spends seven months teaching His disciples and preparing them for what is about to happen. I think that's very important, the timing of these events. And I think He does a a great job of explaining that. Uh, So let's look at 7 again as we look at 1 through... uh, Jesus didn't walk in Galilee... He walked in Galilee, that's the northern part, that's several miles from Jerusalem, but He didn't walk in Judah, that's where He was despised and hated and rejected because the Jews sought to kill Him. Feast of Tabernacles was at hand, and His brothers said to Him, look at the attitude of the brothers who were at this time unbelievers and rejectors. Notice the attitude, and what are they saying to Jesus? Look what they say to Him. His brothers said to Him, Depart from here and go into Judah, that your disciples, who you may see the works that you are doing, for one, no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourselves to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. What is the attitude of the brothers? What do you read into that? Embarrassed by Jesus. I believe that to be quite true. What else? Like everybody else, they just wanted to see more miracles and something that would be a big deal. Curiosity. A prophet is not with honor except in his own country. They were raised with Jesus. Look what they say. I think the, uh, I like what MacArthur says about this. He says, For when no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. They're accusing Jesus of being arrogant, crowd-seeking, popular. They don't believe in him. But there's great hope. Do his brothers come to believe in him? Yes, they do. And when do we see that? After the resurrection at Pentecost. And I'll let you look at that just for your uh, amusement. Acts 1, not for your amusement, for your building up. These these brothers who accused Jesus of being arrogant, of being self-seeking, who themselves didn't believe in Him, they thought He had an agenda, He just wanted to be popular. Look at this now. One uh, fourteen. This is talking about the waiting for the Holy Spirit to come after Jesus has ascended into heaven. They all continued with one accord, praying, supplicating with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with His brothers. And we also see James is one of the brothers who is a witness of the resurrection of Jesus. James, who wrote the book of James, his half-brother, who is the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. Okay, so we see this timing of events, this festering of the hate, this curiosity as they look for Jesus. So the timing is very important. I'm quite sure of that. Jealousy makes people do crazy things. Envious. Well, I think, too, when you live with people in the same abode, not that Jesus had weaknesses, but, you know, you see how one another is, and they saw him as just a human being. They didn't see him as God. And as a result, their expectation was not great of him. You know, it, it was to be like them, who they were. Good. 
One of the reasons why Jesus was not in honor in his own country is because there was a lot of hypocrisy. And they accused Jesus of being hypocritical. And uh, we'll get into that as we, as we see this rejection go further. Uh, but the timing, look at what Jesus says here. Jesus is the sovereign. And he is not going to be told by his brothers or anybody else. Just remember when, remember when, when Mary at the first miracle told, when he was turning the water into wine, uh, he told his mother Mary, he said, woman, my time has not yet come. You're my mother. I respect you. This isn't a dig on you. I'm not being derogatory, but I'm sovereign. You're not. I'm God. You're not. And I'll do what I'm going to do in my timing. Same thing he says to his brothers. Look what he says. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. What does that mean? What does it mean when Jesus says, my time has not yet come? God had a, a timetable for him that was sovereign. That he knew exactly when he was supposed to do what he was supposed to do. That's right. And so he knew it wasn't time for him to do this yet. Let me just say, it's it's the fall, it's the Feast of Tabernacles, and I'm not going to be crucified until the Passover. I'm the Lamb. And I'm going to be crucified on Passover, on the on the day of Passover, and it's not going to be on the Feast of Tabernacles. If you'll let me put that in there, because that's what he's saying. It's not my time yet. That time has been foreordained, and it is a type, and I'm going to fulfill that type to the nth degree. I'm going to be the perfect Son of God, the unleavened bread shed for this broken and torn apart for the sins of my people. Okay, so it's my time, and it's God's timing. But then he says, but your time is always ready. Any clues on that? Contrast the Father's time, His time. He says, your time is always ready. Didn't get a lot of info on commentaries from this, so uh, uh, what do you think about that time? What do you think about that? The only thing I got is what I wrote down is, uh, 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 is uh, the statements of Jesus contrast His brother's unbelief and the world's hatred of Him. You've got to put it in context. So let's do that. My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world can hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not... That word should be now going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he said these things, he said, he, he said to them while he remained in Galilee. So what is the connection between your time is always ready and the next verse, the world hate, cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testified that it worked. What is that? Any understanding of that? What does that mean? It's really God's sovereignty working through Christ. Okay. Okay. We don't know your time. A natural person, the one without Christ, every day is to his schedule and what he wants to do and how he wants to do everything. The world revolves around my time, not God's time. It was just the opposite with the Son of God. Absolutely. He was always on his father's schedule. He always submitted to his father's will. He's always right. submitted to his father's time. <coughs> well, even his own family, they were looking for different. They weren't looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a political savior. So they were ready. Like I mean, they didn't understand his plan, his purpose, and who he was. So they were looking for somebody to do it now, rescue us now. Now, now. You think it has to do with? Well, maybe somebody already said this. Okay, I like that. Well, I mean, I, I'm thinking of the the value of my life versus or anybody's life. Thinking about the value of the life, okay. something goes. We're like a vapor in the wind. That's right. Christ is always been and will always be. He never goes away. He's there. 
to add on to what he was just saying, I was, I'm thinking it's more like um, this time hasn't come yet because, as he just said, his moment in history will shape history. And he says, but your time is always here, meaning um, you may not decide to believe in me and to follow me and to preach of me, but when your time, when you are ready, when that time happens, you'll be here. Because he, he is a historical figure for a lot of us. Uh, James isn't um, just thrown away into the dust of history right. because of his book. And, and, and we also know he was an important leader afterwards. And it's just maybe, you know, if you would just believe me now, you could be one of those people. And, and, and I think that's what he was trying to say when he said, your time is always here. You just choose not to do it at this moment. But you'll okay. Okay. Anybody else? I, I don't have a, uh, a dogmatic answer to that. I didn't see a lot of dogmatic comments on it. Uh, yes, I would expand on what Val said. <clears throat> I have always understood, but your time is always opportune. Jesus said when he came, he came to so that they know the Father. But the Father had been known to man since creation, and everyone was responsible to God because of the acts of creation. And so they could believe any time, but when they said, teach us the works of God and to believe on him who has sinned. Right. Excellent. So it could be an opportunity window. It could be a grace window. Uh, but it is men are responsible to believe and men are without excuse because revelation, the revealing of creation, is enough in itself, general revelation that you would believe in the Father, right? Good points, everyone. Very good. Now, uh, we see this. In this point, the world cannot hate me because I testify. Jesus is hated today. You can say, I believe in God all you want. You're okay with that. But when you bring up Jesus, He is a hated name. He's a vilified name. And one of the reasons why He's vilified, He says, the world cannot hate you, brothers, because you're of the world. The world accepts itself. But they hate me because what? I'm the light, and I'm revealing the deeds, the wicked deeds. That's why the world hates hates Jesus, and still hates Jesus, and the way the why the world mocks Jesus, and will always mock Jesus and mock His people. Uh, so uh, don't be surprised when you're mocked and vilified and made fun of, and and uh, it's just going to happen. And it's a glory to be mocked for Jesus' sake, and it's a crown for us. Blessed are you who are persecuted for my sake, okay? Because Jesus is the light that reveals the darkness and dispels the darkness and the world hates that. The world don't want to be told this, this, this. The world wants to say, oh, but the culture says this, this, and that. I can do what I want to do. It's like, it's like David said today, right? We need to believe what Jesus said. And what we have believed before is wrong. Okay? So that's, uh, I think, important uh, for this. Uh, I think it's very important. Uh, where am I? There we go. Now, Jesus defends His doctrine. Let me, uh, I'm going to cut it here. Uh, 
Have we sort of got a good understanding of this? Jesus is going to defend his doctrine. He does it with five or six different ways. Uh, so bring back this for next week. I'll get into it more. But I'm going to hit the rock and the flowing out of the Holy Spirit and the reaction of the unbelievers, the final hatred and the determination to kill Jesus. And then we're going to see Jesus say, The second I am, I am light, as he finishes up his discourse in the Feast of Tabernacles. Qu- comments or questions?